1: Welcome everyone to the On Poly podcast. I'm Steve Payton, And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, the NDP unveils its election platform well before the campaign even officially begins. You might think COVID is yesterday's news, but the numbers certainly don't suggest that. The Ontario Liberals pledge to get rid of all handguns and help seniors. At the same time, they need a new candidate in Waterloo and an unprecedented move towards reconciliation by Ottawa City Council. It's Tuesday, April 26th, 2022, so let's get to it. JMM, we got a most interesting indication on Monday of how campaigns these days have changed. I well remember back in the day, parties wouldn't release their platforms until the campaign was well underway. Well, of course, this 2022 campaign hasn't officially started yet. That won't happen until May the 4th. And yet, the NDP have already released their platform, which they did Monday morning. Let's—we're um, going to break up how we roll this out here and let people know what they had to say. So let's start with the healthcare highlights, if we could.
0: Right. Uh, Obviously, a uh, key issue for all of the parties as we deal with uh, the the fallout of the pandemic. Uh, So the NDP are promising uh, universal publicly funded mental health care. Uh, They would expand access to counseling and therapy services across the province by bringing therapy services into OHIP. Uh, They are promising pharmacare. Obviously, there's some uh, federal movement on that file uh, as well right now. Uh, They want to recruit, retain uh, and return health care workers workers in in supporting roles, uh, as well as hire 10,000 new personal support workers and 30,000 new nurses. Um, As part of that, they want to uh, expedite the recognition of foreign credentials of uh, 15,000 internationally trained nurses. We've talked about this before, people who are qualified in other countries to to be healthcare workers, but have not been able to get the province of Ontario to recognize their credentials. Uh, They also want to hire 300 doctors and 100 specialists, specifically for Northern Ontario. You know, it's often hard to find, uh, you know, for example, a family doctor anywhere in the province, but in the north, the, the problem is more severe, just given the, the long distances that people frequently have to travel. They also want to eliminate unfair user fees on patients and their families in every part of the healthcare system. Uh, that is a promise that uh, has been in the NDP platform before. And it's something that, uh, frankly, a lot of governments have struggled to deal with because hospitals keep finding, uh, health, hospitals and other healthcare providers, I should say, uh, do uh, find ways to, to impose fees elsewhere.
1: That is the healthcare platform. Let's move on to finances. What do they have to say on that?
0: Uh, maybe the biggest uh, headline promise from the NDP this time around is is what they're calling a middle income tax freeze uh, for four years. Uh, they uh, are, are promising some increases in taxes. They they are talking about a, an annual speculation and vacancy tax uh, on uh, people who own properties that they don't live in. Uh, they are also certainly alluding to tax increases on the very highest income earners and large corporations. Um, but for uh, people making uh, Less than $200,000, they are talking about a middle income tax freeze, as they're calling it. Uh, they also want to bring back rent control for uh, all apartments. Uh, they, that would eliminate the financial incentive for landlords to uh, potentially squeeze out tenants and, and, and raise the rent. Uh, if uh, the NDP win the election, a, a landlord would not be able to charge a new tenant any more than they were charging
1: the previous tenant. Because we frequently hear stories about landlords who, in order to get an increase in the rent, they will kick out the existing tenant. And when you get a new tenant in there, you are allowed to increase the new rent much beyond the rate of inflation. Uh, and and that happens. So this would prov- this would put an end to that, theoretically.
0: Yeah, in theory. And, and you, there are reasons in Ontario law why a landlord is allowed to uh, evict a tenant, obviously. Um, sometimes, of course, that's done for pretextual reasons, you know, uh, it's harder to do this now, but the classic example used to be a landlord saying, well, I'm moving a family member into your apartment and they had a sort of carte blanche to uh, uh, evict you in that case. And then it turned out, oops, their nephew wasn't actually moving in with them. And suddenly your old apartment has been listed again with a, you know a 50 percent higher rent,
1: for example. Right. OK, that's on the finance side. What about electricity? Uh, everybody's got a lot to say about hydro these days. What does the NDP have to say?
0: Uh, the NDP want to a- expand the hydroelectric capacity, that is to say, you know, water power dams. Uh, they also want to increase other renewables, such as uh, wind and solar power. Uh, the NDP not uh, a fan of nuclear power. Uh, in their uh, previous Green New Democratic Deal document, they said they don't want to expand uh, the province's fleet of nuclear plants uh, it- until some of the-, the core issues around nuclear power have been solved. Uh, they also want to improve grid scale energy storage and make major grid connections with Quebec and Manitoba, Uh, Quebec and Manitoba, obviously, uh, large producers of hydroelectricity. uh, And if we could buy that electricity from our neighboring provinces, that would be a a cleaner way to to get that electricity relative to, say, building new natural gas power plants.
1: And just finally, the price tag on all this.
0: Yeah, you'd think that uh, we might have mentioned that before now, but uh, unfortunately, the NDP don't have a a price tag for us. Uh, Leader Andrew Horvath was asked uh, about that uh, several times uh, on Monday morning when they announced this and uh, effectively said that's going to be revealed later. Uh, They are waiting for the provincial budget to be released on Thursday, uh, and uh, they are effectively saying there is just no point in guessing at the state of the province's finances. So uh, they're going to wait to see what the government's numbers are on Thursday, and then they will base the costing of their platform off of those numbers. And, uh, you know, they, they are promising to have a, a full
1: cost document, uh, certainly not long
0: into the election campaign.
1: So stay tuned. All right, here's a COVID check. This is, um, I guess I should set up this first comment by saying this is not meant to be a cynical comment. uh, But the reality is the current provincial government would like us to believe that COVID is pretty much in the rearview mirror and there's not much left to worry about. Except the numbers are a little bit worrisome again. What's going on now?
0: Well, you know, the, the latest sub-variant of Omicron, uh, BA2, uh, is, is coming on with a vengeance. Um, <laughs> the problem with Ontario at the moment is that we are not testing uh, as much as we once did. So you can't actually say with a lot of um, confidence or precision uh, how many daily cases there really are. Uh, it is uh, what we are reporting a minimum of thousands. Uh, you know, guesstimates are that it is many multiples of that, probably tens of thousands uh, of people uh, sick with COVID. Uh, The good news, such as it is, uh, the province's chief medical officer of health, Dr. Kieran Moore, says that we have probably peaked uh, or are even a bit past the peak of uh, the overall case count. But As has been true throughout the pandemic, there are leading indicators and there are lagging indicators. And uh, the lagging indicators are things like our hospitalizations and, unfortunately, our deaths. Uh, We are likely to see hospitalizations continue to increase over this week. Uh, Dr. Moore acknowledged as much in a a message last week saying that uh, this is going to be a hard week. He says hospitalizations uh, could very well top 2,000. They are already around 1,500 COVID patients in the hospital. Uh, as we record this, uh, 219 patients in ICU care as of Monday. Uh, That is up from last week. Um, And uh, of course, uh, more than 12,700 people have died of COVID uh, since March of
1: 2020. Now let's talk mask mandates. They are gone in most places except for public transit and hospitals, nursing and retirement homes, some other healthcare settings. They were set, the mask mandates were set to expire on April 27th that is no longer the case. What's the new date? Uh,
0: On Friday, Dr. Moore announced that the mask mandates will be extended until June 11th. Um, There was some discussion about extending it maybe only until May 25th, but they have decided to um, uh, effectively punt it for a bit more than a week after election day. Uh, Though, of course, I'm I'm certain that there's no connection
1: with the calendar there. (laughs) Well, I'm going to pull a little audible on you here because I notice the mask mandates are being extended, but the McGrath mandate has not been. I read your column this past week, and unlike something you've been doing just sort of as part of your daily job for the last uh, couple of years, you are no longer compiling the sort of, what do you want to call it? The daily count of what's going on <laughs> with COVID-19? And you want to call them about this. Tell us about it.
0: I, I'm doing a much more stripped down version uh, of the COVID tweets that I have been doing for about uh, two years. Uh, when I first started doing them, uh, it was a relatively small set of numbers. And then, of course, as we got more data from the province, uh, my, my tweets expanded. They kept growing and growing. And um, it became very uh, unwieldy. Uh, I was at one point, I was, you know, tweeting out regional Breakdowns and you know the the vaccination rates by different age demographics and um, the the long and short of it is that uh, much of that data is not as useful as it once was. Uh, we already talked about how we aren't testing as many people as we used to, so I don't have a lot of confidence in the accuracy of those regional numbers anymore. And I didn't think it was worth tweeting them out. Um, and on the vaccination side of things, we just are not really vaccinating that many people anymore, uh, you know, a few thousand a day. Uh, it's it's a far cry from, you know, last summer or, or the rush to get third doses in, uh, you know, late December, early January, when we, we were doing as many as 200,000 in a day. So given that those uh, particular data points were not terribly useful anymore, I just decided, you know, I'm going to strip it down to really the bare essentials. Uh, it, it It wasn't super labor intensive but it, it was getting unwieldy and uh, we have an election uh, coming up that I'm going to have to do a lot of work to cover and so I wanted something that I could do ideally in just a few minutes every morning uh, and then you know tweet out a few quick numbers, a few quick charts and uh, and call it a day.
1: I gather some people got mad at you when you put the numbers out there.
0: Oh, it, was, yeah, I have spent two years uh, getting yelled at um, uh, on occasion, from all sides, uh, though uh, most frequently from people accusing me of, uh, you know, taking some kind of alarmist position about. The, the state of COVID on, in Ontario, which has always been kind of strange to me, because all I'm doing is repeating the numbers that the government of Ontario is publishing. So like, if I'm being an alarmist about these numbers, then like, so is Doug Ford. And
1: I don't think that's true. <laughs> I think this comes under the don't shoot the messenger department.
0: Yeah, well, lots of people like shooting messengers these days. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: All right. Let's circle back now to the NDP, because there is yet another update on a story that we've been following for a few weeks now. Our listeners will remember that MPP Kevin Yard from Brampton North, he was one of the few black MPPs in the legislature, and then he lost his nomination for the June 2nd election. But there has been yet another development in his story. JMM, if you would.
0: So the disappointment here uh, is with how the the, the NDP as a party handled this nomination battle. Uh, Specifically, the allegation against the party is that Yard only learned that his nomination was being contested after the window to sign up members had already closed. Um, The party obviously contests that and says, you know, it's actually your job as a a member to to sign up members all year long. (laughs) Um, Regardless, the, the bad feelings have prompted Yard to leave the NDP caucus, and he will sit as an independent for the remainder of the term Uh, that is almost certainly going to be less than five days uh, left before the dissolution. Nevertheless, uh, considerable um, consternation, I guess, that Yard is, uh, you know, one of the few Black MPPs in the entire House uh, and was not uh, protected or or served well by the party. Uh, Just to to remind our listeners, uh, he was uh, successfully challenged by uh, Sandeep Singh, uh, who, uh, you know, is is now going to be the NDP's candidate in uh, Brampton North, uh, won the nomination, uh, you know, Yard's supporters, of course, are, are crying foul, saying that, you know, the party should have done more to protect him. Uh, but uh, the, the either the party or at least the, the local riding association uh, thinks that uh, they have a better chance to hold on to the seat with uh, Singh rather than Yard, uh, who, you know, for the record, uh, did only win the seat by about 500 votes in
1: 2018. Though I-, I will add, there were a lot of narrow seats in the 2018 election. <laughs> yes, indeed, there were. And and but we're not finished with this yet because there's another interesting angle here. Yard initially said that he wouldn't run provincially anywhere else, despite being shut out in Brampton North. He was, of course, a a vetted candidate for the NDP, so he could have picked another riding had he wanted to. And his initial thought was, maybe I'll look at the municipal races in October and run for a local council seat. But now apparently he is considering running in Brampton North as an independent to give the voters there the choice of bringing him back if they want to.
0: You know, and the effect here obviously would be to, to split the NDP vote uh, if he does in fact run as an independent and, and that could you know give uh, one of the other parties uh, a, a, an easier win. Uh, or perhaps he'll win, uh, or Singh could win anyway. (laughs) Uh, It is a bit of a mess, and it's all very reminiscent of what happened in uh, Hamilton East Stony Creek, where NDP MPP Paul Miller was forced out, uh, replaced as the NDP candidate, uh, and then uh, Miller has decided to run as an independent anyway. Uh, There are, um, let's say, difficulties (laughs) behind the scenes with the NDP uh, that... uh, I think it's fair to say the party would really like to iron these all out before the legislature is dissolved
1: if they want to you know, put their best foot forward on June 2nd. Let's move the spotlight to the other opposition party. The Liberals drew the most attention last week for their pledge to ban handguns in the city. We know that there have been and will continue to be a lot of promises made in the lead up to the election campaign. What is behind this pledge to get rid of handguns?
0: This is a uh, perennial promise. Uh, People may recall that uh, the federal liberals uh, made this uh, promise and uh, are still, (laughs) let's put this politely, they are still working on implementation. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, Stephen Del Duca pledges to do it in his first year in office. This is in reality going to be difficult, if not impossible, to implement. The province doesn't really have the power to do this anyway. Uh, it is a part of the federal criminal power. Um, so recognizing that, Stephen Del Duca's line was that an Ontario Liberal government uh, will be proud to work closely with all our municipal partners, including Toronto City Council, and to work with the federal government to tackle the issue head on. Well, now, what does that mean? <laughs> Good question. Um, you know, the... the. Uh, the nature of the law that the federal government has proposed is that, you know, cities would have the power to to ban handguns, essentially, you know, being cloaked in the federal criminal power, but, you know, this just gets really, really difficult to imagine it working. I mean, you know, are police going to, you know, go door-to-door to to every house in the province and ask whether people living there have handguns in the home. No, they're not. Uh, The reality is that 80% of the guns used in crimes are illegally obtained. So passing a law saying these guns are illegal and we'd ban them, you know, it's like trying to recriminalize murder. Like, what are you actually going to (laughs) do?
1: Now, also on the campaign front, the liberals unveiled on Monday a policy plank for seniors. So let's get some detail about that.
0: Uh, The Liberals are proposing to add up to $1,000 more per year to the amount received by existing pensioners through Ontario's uh, Guaranteed Annual Income System, or GAINS. Uh, The Liberal plan would also increase the eligibility threshold to $25,000 for single seniors or $50,000 for couples.
1: Now, I know you've been waiting for this since the podcast began, but here comes your Bill Davis (laughs) moment, okay? Okay. The GAINS program, Guaranteed Annual Income System. This was something implemented nearly 50 years ago by the Davis government when many, many, many more seniors in this province were truly living in poverty. And when they brought in this essentially old age supplement to top up what the federal government was giving, they cut seniors' poverty by 80% in the province by bringing in this supplement. So it's been considered one of the most successful anti-poverty programs in Ontario history. What's the cost of the Del Duca plan? Uh, he
0: said on Monday that the, the, the estimated cost is $250 million, but uh, like the NDP, we don't have a, a, a party costing document for this. Uh, Stephen Del Duca does say that a, a, the, the party will, of course, produce a, a fully costed platform. Uh, I, I believe his exact words were well before Election Day.
1: <laughs> Let's hope so. Let's yeah, hope so. so. Well before Election Ideally. Day. Right. <laughs> Um, okay, some tricky pre-election problems for the liberals and the conservatives, actually, to report on right now. Rami Saeed is no longer the liberal candidate in Waterloo. Apparently, he neglected to file his financial statements after running unsuccessfully to be a Waterloo City Councilor in 2018. And so, what
0: Uh, That is uh, technically a contravention of the Municipal Elections Act. Uh, And so uh, the Liberals, who did not catch the mistake until now, uh, have said the the punishment for uh, this uh, breach is he's out as a candidate. Uh, So the Liberals will need a new candidate in the riding of Waterloo.
1: Now, for what it's worth, Catherine Fife has held that seat for the NDP for 10 years. So it was going to be a struggle for Saeed to take it anyway for the Liberals. But there's also some trouble in Tory land. Toby Barrett, who has been the conservative MPP in Halderman Norfolk and various writings around there, they've been renamed them a few times, he's been there since 1995. He didn't even last week get a chance to announce his planned retirement from politics because the Tory candidate who's replacing him jumped the gun and announced that he was going to be the new candidate before Mr. Barrett had a chance to announce his retirement. What did Mr. Barrett think about all that, John Michael?
0: Uh, well, he was definitely not amused. Uh, he <laughs> described his named re- replacement as his arch rival. Uh, his replacement is uh, Haldeman County Mayor Ken Hewitt. Uh, Barrett said that uh, he should have been announcing his own retirement, not as replacement. He he sounded quite miffed about the whole thing, and and I don't think it's unearned. <laughs> uh, one of you know this is one of the safest Tory seats in Ontario. Um, I- I- one of the indicators I, I point to is that uh, federally, when uh, Leslin Lewis was looking looking for a a safe riding. Uh, Then-leader Erin O'Toole uh, gave her the riding of of Haldeman Norfolk federally to run in, and it's about as safe as a a Tory riding gets in this province. Um, But it's not a classy way for the party to treat a guy who's been there uh, for almost three decades. Uh, When the party released the news about Hewitt, it didn't uh, actually mention Barrett and thank him for his service or or wish him well. Um, And uh, it's doubly odd, I thought, because Barrett was actually one of the only MPPs who was in the the city Tory caucus in 2018 who endorsed Doug Ford uh, prior to him winning the leadership. Uh, Most of the other caucus-backed Christine Elliott or or other uh, candidates. So just a, a very odd note for Barrett's uh, political
1: career to end on. Indeed. Another retiring MPP to note, Liberal MPP Michael Gravel. He announced on Monday that he will not be seeking re-election in the riding of Thunder Bay, Superior North. Gravel has been an MPP also since 1995 and recently announced that he was beginning treatment for cancer again. He's since decided he can't run and do this at the same time. Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca called Gravel the lion of the legislature.
0: I I do have a story about Mike Gravel Uh, really briefly. A few years ago here at TVO, we made an effort to put reporters in different regions of the province. And we started with Northwestern Ontario. And uh, the day we announced that we'd hired a reporter in Thunder Bay, my phone rang and it was the Minister of Northern Development and Mines, as Gravel was then. And he was just so enthusiastic about TVO's decision to cover the Northwest. And he he literally just called me to say that he thought it was great. And he wanted to do whatever he could to make it succeed. And it was just a really, you know, charming and enthusiastic phone call. that was in 2017. And he he won his seat in the next year by fewer than 1000 votes. And I don't think the last four years have been uh, easy for him. But I think a lot about how much his enthusiasm and his love for his community came through in that phone call. Uh, I certainly want to wish him a a full recovery and a, a long and happy life after
1: his time at Queen's Park. Amen. Now, remember a few weeks back, we told you, we told everyone, frankly, that Premier Doug Ford was being dubbed the $6 billion man because of all the pre-election goodies he was handing out? Well, he's not the $6 billion man anymore. (laughs) Try the almost $11 billion man. According to CBC News' number
0: crunching, the province has announced $10.9 billion in additional spending, rebates, and tax cuts during the lead up to the elections in March. We may find out or not uh, in Thursday's budget uh, how the government intends
1: to actually pay for all of these announcements. And while we're here, let's put in a little plug as well. Budget day is Thursday, yes. So remember, watch the agenda on TVO at 8 p.m. for our live uh, budget coverage. Uh, Peter Bethlen-Falvey, the Minister of Finance, will give his longest and most in-depth interview on TVO on the agenda that night. And then check out TVO.org, the website, after 4 p.m. when the lockup is over. And you can read John Michaels and my budget columns on the website. And I guess, what is today? I guess we're taping this on a Monday. Monday ends in the letter Y. So because (laughs) this is a day that ends in the letter Y, I guess we need some more pre-election public opinion polling to chew on. We have three polls that we wanna share with you right now. This first one is from Main Street Research and it is of decided voters only. It's got the Conservatives just shy of 40%, the Liberals just over 25%, the Ontario NDP just shy of 22%, the Greens just north of 5.5%, and most interestingly, other parties are actually fourth, 7.6% say they'd vote for something other than one of those four parties. So we know that's what the total vote if the election were held today, would look like, according to Main Street, we don't do total votes, though. We do seats. So we got to figure out how the votes split and how it translates into seats. Mr. McGrath, I pass <laughs> the baton to you for that.
0: So if those numbers held up on June 2nd, on Election Day, uh, Main Street says there would be a massive majority government for the Conservatives. Now, as we have said Repeatedly before. We might be getting monotonous on this topic. Uh, this is a perfect scenario for the Conservatives because they are nudging just up to 40%, which is what we traditionally think of as the threshold for majority government. Uh, and even more importantly, the opposition is really evenly split. Uh, the Liberals and New Democrats only about three and a half points apart. Uh, however, there were two other polls that came out just last Friday and uh, they said something
1: different. They sure did. They've got a much tighter race. Ipsos shows the Liberals gaining on the Conservatives with the governing party slipping three points. So they've got the PCs at 35, the Liberals up to 32, the NDP up just one point to 23, and then there is a third poll, this one from Abacus Data, and very similar to the Ipsos one, Tories 36, Liberals 32, New Democrats 23. Now, if those second and third polls turn out to be accurate on election day, what does that suggest?
0: Well, that would probably mean no majority government for the progressive conservatives. And it's really interesting just to like, Focus on the margins there, right? The difference between a majority uh, for the progressive conservatives and some kind of minority legislature is like three or four points for the Tories, right? The difference between forty and thirty-six or thirty-five, or you know, in that range, that's going to be the ball game, and it's going to be really interesting to see how the votes actually do split. Uh, and then, of course, if uh, results on election day do match either that Ipsos or Abacus poll or are close to that, uh, we then uh, probably have a longer election night and then probably several days of interesting news to cover uh, for for our jobs, uh, because then the question will be, can the Liberals and the NDP negotiate some kind of agreement to unseat a, a conservative minority? And, you know, Lord knows the conservatives are also going to be trying to, to negotiate some kind of Uh,
1: life-saving deal. And it's 1985 all over again. Yes, indeed. We'll keep an eye on that. Now, a few other numbers from these polls. Abacus also found that 49% of respondents think it is time for a change in government. That's not a great number for the opposition parties. Usually, you don't see a change in government unless the it's time for a change number hits closer to 60%. It's only at 49% right there. So that's good news for Doug Ford. Uh, For example, in 2018, The last Ontario election, 63% of the people said it's time to get rid of the Liberals. And guess what? That is, in fact, exactly what happened. However, JMM, what do I like to remind people of all the time? Polls are an excellent indication of what
0: people thought yesterday, or in this case a week ago. Uh, They do not tell you what people will think tomorrow, or even several weeks from now on June 2nd. Uh, We say this a lot, Uh, people are probably sick of hearing it, but it is true and it's important to remember. And you know, it's also important for people in our line of work to remember this because it's very easy to get mesmerized by the the drumbeat of new polling data. Uh, You know, most campaigns these days see the polls saying one thing a month before the campaign and then a very different thing on election day. I think my favorite example of this is the 2015 federal election where Justin Trudeau and the Liberals were in third place when uh, the the election period started. So, you know, things can change. Campaigns matter and uh, stay tuned.
1: You don't even have to go that far back. I know in the last federal election, uh, which took place, Ooh, gosh, when was that? Last September? Is that, if memory serves? I mean, the Trudeau Liberals were six points down on the Conservatives one week into the thing, and they ended up one point down, but winning. So yeah, campaigns matter. All right, let's switch uh, to some really uplifting developments. The city of Ottawa is appointing an elder of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation as a non-voting member of the city council until at least the year 2026. This has never been done before. Why is it happening? Uh,
0: The city of Ottawa has a five-year Indigenous reconciliation plan uh, that has uh, received the support of local Indigenous leaders. You know, this is uh, potentially a very interesting, a very uh, 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 hopeful move. Uh, You know, we have seen at Queen's Park uh, that, you know, to be blunt, representation matters. Uh, the presence of even a you know a single Indigenous representative can change the tenor of debates and a question period. Uh, of course, you and I have spoken repeatedly about how the chamber at Queen's Park gets hushed when Salma Makwa rises to his feet and he, he speaks and he's one of the few opposition members that the Tories do not heckle. Uh, he, he brings uh, a certain amount of gravitas when he speaks. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't want to uh, you necessarily put uh, so much pressure on uh, this uh, new member's uh, expectations or whatever, but you know it, it will be uh, worth watching to see what the effect on debates at Ottawa City Council are. Uh, hopefully if nothing else, just bringing a different perspective uh, will be valuable and important.
1: Right. And who knows how many other city councils might decide to replicate this idea if it works well. So we'll keep an eye on that for our listeners. Now, before we get to our Quotes of the Week, which we do every week on the podcast, we did want to announce something that uh, I think we're pretty excited about, actually. Throughout the writ period, the writ period is when the legislature is dissolved, the lieutenant governor signs all the writs, she draws up the writs uh, for the election period. So between, I guess, what will be May 4th and June 2nd, we're going to do this podcast, not weekly, but daily. And um, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be right on top of stuff. What are we going to be talking about, John Michael, for example?
0: Uh, well, I will mostly be trying not to troll you by using the phrase dropping the
1: writ. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the writs are drawn up. They're not dropped. I know those words sound the same, but they're drawn up.
0: Um, No, uh, episodes are going to come out uh, a little bit later uh, than normal. We we have been uh, publishing Tuesday mornings. Uh, We will now be publishing in the evenings instead. Uh, We are going to try and cover as much as we can about what happened on the campaign trail that day. Um, Any uh, new polling, uh, new party announcement, platform documents. It is basically going to be uh, probably a a shorter version of this podcast, but it will be uh, on a daily basis. So I think on average, our
1: listeners will probably get much more Paken and McGrath content. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact is, I, I, I think during the election campaigns, one thing that I know you and I both like to do, when the leaders come to town, um, we like to go to their events. We like to follow candidates who go knocking on doors just to see what issues come up at the door. And we like to get out and, you know, out and about around the province. And we, we, we aim to, we hope to do all of those things and then bring you essentially what we're learning Uh, to our podcast listeners on a daily basis, which they can listen to or in the evenings, or if you like the mornings, you know, get up at six, it'll still be there for you. And, uh, you know, we're going to do that right till election day when we'll wrap it all up with a big extravaganza special uh, on TVO on the air. So yeah, keep an eye on your podcast feeds for that. We always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those immediately after. We ask you for a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org.
0: We also remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops uh, every Tuesday. It will not be going daily, as far as I know. Uh, But you can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash onpoly-newsletter.
1: And this week's newsletter, we write about the new survey from the Financial Accountability Officer of Ontario, who, when asked by an MPP to investigate whether people pay the taxes they pay in, whether they get the services back that they think they ought to be getting. And the answer is, read the newsletter and we'll tell you. (laughs) How's that for a cliffhanger? Okay, here's my quote of the week. Apropos of the latest polling showing the NDP in third place, the party's leader, Andrea Horvath, says, here's another thing the poll shows.
2: The most important part of those polls, in in my estimation, uh, is the fact that The majority of people want to get rid of Doug Ford. Uh, We have a whole campaign ahead of us and we're going to be spending our time talking to Ontarians from one end of the province to the other uh, and and people will you use the campaign period, let's not forget, campaigns matter. Uh, And folks will focus in on on what kind of future Ontario wants and needs. Thus far, it's been clear that folks, uh, the majority of folks want to see Doug Ford defeated. And so the campaign is the opportunity to talk to people about how do we achieve that. And this time we have to come together.
1: That's opposition leader Andrea Horvath from a news conference in downtown Toronto last Thursday.
0: Uh, and here's my quote of the week, also from Andrea Horvath. This is from her uh, platform launch announcement uh, on Monday, uh, where she was asked by a reporter whether uh, individuals making $200,000 uh, can reasonably be called uh, middle income. Uh, here's what she had to say.
2: I would say a lot of folks around that uh, around that, um household income, or rather around that personal income level, consider themselves middle class. Uh, and, and I think that's where we where we were thinking as well. Uh, folks um, around $200,000 are struggling to buy a home these days. Let's face it, you could be earning uh, 150 dollars $200,000 a year and still not be able to keep up with your bills and uh, and and put aside the money you want uh, to uh, to buy your own home.
0: That's NDP leader Andrew Horvath speaking in Toronto on Monday.
1: I think the numbers in the province of Ontario show that the 1% is anybody making north of $200,000 a year. So if you're making 200K a year, you're not middle-class in Ontario, I'm sorry. You're part it's, of the, you're, you're a high-income person.
0: It's a bit of a stretch.
1: Yeah, indeed. <laughs> All right. That's this week's episode of the On Poly Podcast. Produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Meara. Production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Halliwell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. I'll see you next week, Steve, and every day thereafter. Here, here. <laughs>